All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup edition of On the March. And today I am joined by my bicentennial co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. And I'm giving you that adjective, Mark, because this is the 200th On the Margin. <laughs> oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. And uh, I, I have not been part of all of them, although I, uh, the last year, we had our one-year anniversary a little bit ago, has, yeah. has just been amazing. And uh, congrats on the, on the 200th version. And, you know, I, I have an adjective for you. You know, we're coming wow. at you uh, audio only because mm. of my uh, intrepid uh, co-host, a uh, little experience <laughs> with uh, some food poisoning over the weekend, which led to some incapacitation. So uh, yeah. as he recovers and recuperates, uh, so maybe incapacitated, unfortunately, would be the uh, would be the right adjective today. But um, so we're going to have to do the video. I mean, the uh, the audio uh, sock reveal. So, you know, I am I am decked out in the uh, the uh, Bitcoin Friday pants. So I got my orange pants on and, mm. and I have my my green Bitcoin bull socks on. I, I, we are squarely in a bull market. And we'll, we'll talk about why. But I did notice this morning. So hopefully my friends at Mount Socks are listening. I have a little hole in have worn them so much. I have a little hole in my my Bitcoin bull sock. So I, I, I need an upgrade, but, uh, uh, that is the sock reveal and I'm ready to rock and roll. There is, I mean, this was an amazing week. So much going on. So an much. enormous amount, enormous amount going on. And yeah, it's, uh, it's audio. I, I wish we, we weren't doing the audio, uh, just for, for the 200th episode, but, uh, yeah, your, your boy's playing hurt, uh, this week. I've, I've, you know, my friends know I've got a horrendous back and, uh, yeah, that that ran into um, not not to give people a TMI, but I did have a, a bout of food poisoning and uh, and the the vigor that I was uh, discharging some of that food actually caused me. There we go, back vigorous, out. So, my vigorous just, co-host. My, yeah. You yeah, are vigorous. You are vigorous yeah. in everything you do, yeah. and therefore it makes <laughs> sense that uh, vigorous would uh, would apply there. So yeah, that, yeah. that's good. Yeah, but uh, such is my dedication to the craft, and I, I couldn't bail on you, Mark. So I wanted to I wanted to give the people a show anyway here. So. I thought. I appreciate uh, it. No sick days, baby. No, no days sick off. Days. No days off. Absolutely. Um, all right. I've got a. I've got a fun one to kick the the charts off this week, which is <laughs> this is the the cover of the Economist. Uh, I don't know if you see. They're um, pretty. Uh, of course. Of course. They are undefeated. Uh, so for those of you who aren't following along via video, uh, it, the the title is "Why Inflation Will Be Hard to Bring Down." It's actually. I I got to admit, for as as good of a contraindicator as they are. They always do capture the zeitgeist, so they've got a a balloon uh, that has yes. kind of a nail in it. So they they yeah. really they went multi dimensional on this artwork because they captured the the whole UFO China balloon scare, but also you know they made it work with with inflation. So we got we and, got, they and they nailed it, and they nailed it, and they nailed it, and they nailed it. So they've got so we we did get uh, we got a bunch of economic data this week. So we had CPI come in, we had PPI come in, we got uh, retail sales. And uh, and we got unemployment. So basically, the you know, in terms of CPI, it wasn't a wildly unexpected print here. So what we're looking at, this is the month over month difference. Uh, again, n- nothing to be really, you know, nothing super unexpected here. The 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 vast majority of what's still impacting uh, core CPI is is shelter, you know, and yeah. we know that there's a there's a heavy lag to 
to shelter, which is sort of weighing on the index. It was a slight beat in terms of the year-over-year uh, CPI, but you know, overall, it was it was relatively sort of par for the course. I'm not sure, Mark, if there's anything that you wanted to kind of pull out of the, the CPI data. No, look, C- CPI, as we have discussed over and over, is it's just a bad indicator. I mean, it's mm-hmm. bad on all levels. It's manipulated because mm-hmm. uh, the goal is to keep it as low as possible uh, because it's what is linked to entitlement programs. And then you have this unexpected COVID uh, reopening problem base effect, and they can't seem to uh, do math very well and adjust for the the fact that you know oil went all the way to negative and then you know trebled off the forty normalized price, and used car prices went crazy and and so they for some reason they didn't strip that out. But okay, but now you got this this owner's equivalent rent nonsense, which is, yes, housing prices went up. Now, I will argue, as I've been arguing, they, they didn't, right? Your, your money just got less valuable. And so um, that happened, past tense, and money supply growth went, went ballistic. And if you look at CPI with a 16-month lag, um, it looks exactly like money supply, money supply growth has turned negative uh, as of you know six months ago. So you know, kind of a year out, um, not even a year. So you know, probably eight ten months out, we're going to have negative CPI prints. Mm. Uh, now, will we get all the way there to deflation? I don't know. Probably not. But I, you know, I think we're absolutely going to be back to to the sub two percent level. Uh, by the end of the year, and you know it's it's really interesting. I, I you've seen a collapse in used car prices, uh, still high, but but a collapse nonetheless. You've you've seen oil prices, you know, basically be down year over year, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're actually not up; they're down. So if you think about that, that that's good for quote unquote inflation. Um, but there are some sticky price increases. Like I, you know, we have a Shake Shack, which yeah, is awesome uh, here in Chapel Hill, finally. And you know, I've been going there a lot, and their prices are just stupid. I mean, the food is great; it's great, but but their prices are just stupid, and the, they're not coming down. So I, I do, I do think there is this. Yeah, you know, as much as I think the Economist cover is wrong that inflation is not going to stay high. Um, I do think there are some components of cost in our lives, which are going to be sticky down. And, and I think, you know, restaurant food is is one of them. Yep. I, I agree with you on that. And I mean, we, we, we do know too, that the Fed is trying to they they continuously kind of re-engineer or or you know they create sort of different metrics that they that they care about. And we know that they care about uh, core CPI X housing services, right? Because they they kind of you know the less charitable version is say they they're trying to engineer a number that looks good. The more charitable version is they're trying to say, hey, we we kind of understand the impact that shelters having here. And again, if you're following along via video, you can kind of see this uh, you know shelter peaking, but they're pretty confident that that's going to turn. So they're trying to kind of see through that part of the data and try to get an understanding, to your point, 
of what part, how sticky really is, is inflation. And, uh, you know, I mean, there are, again, this is just another sort of data point here, but it's kind of interesting. This is, uh, you can look at, again, if you're following along via video, you can look at, we've got U.S. core services X shelter. So excluding that, that shelter component, you can kind of see, uh, categories here like medical care, transportation, recreation, education, et cetera. So you can actually see medical care is, has gone negative, uh, for the last couple of months. Uh, but there are still some, some kind of persistently, persistently sticky costs like, like transportation. And then on the right here, you're looking at, uh, the Zillow rent index and Zillow rent and CPI, uh, the, the shelter component of CPI are highly correlated, but Zillow is just a more, you know, real time, uh, real time data. So it, it, so, it sort of tends to lead the, the shelter component of CPI. So basically all signs are kind of pointing towards, uh, things turning over. It just hasn't necessarily happened. Yet. Well, and, and on that on that Zillow number, again, it's corroborating what the money supply is already telling us that, you know, by the end of this year, beginning of, of next year, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have negative numbers. Yeah. And, you know, you look around at, at, at what is what is happening uh, and you've, you know, I think you were one of the first to, to, to bring this this number out to people's attention was this, you know, persistent um, bubble, I'll call it, of, of quote-unquote savings post the, the stimulus checks. Mm. And, and while it had been cut in half, you know, it went from $2 trillion down to, to $800 billion, there was still $800 billion on consumer balance sheets. And so you know, everybody's crowing about the uh, retail sales number earlier this week. And, oh, it's such a great number. I'm like, okay. First of all, um, we had the warmest January in like a long time. I don't, I don't know exactly how long, but it was decades, like many, many decades. And, and it's not like it was super warm, like like global warming warm, but it, it was warmer than average. And we didn't have any snow. I mean, we, we got no snow in North Carolina. I mean, not that we get a lot anyway. Very mild winter got, in New York too. Yeah, we got none. And and because of that, you know, <laughs> they they still... I, I just don't understand. They're supposed to seasonally adjust. And again, you got a lot of PhDs working on this stuff and, and they never seem to get it right. And so first quarter always is is wonky because it's it's weather impacted. And I would think they would have models at this point that, that would seasonally adjust correctly, but they don't. Anyway, so so retail sales looked really good, except for two things. And this just drives me crazy. And I, I did a conversation with David Rosenberg uh, on Wednesday. Hmm. And I love Rosie. I mean, he is, he is the, in fact, we should have Rosie on some Friday. He's, he's just so amazing. And he's just been around forever and, um, and just really knows his craft. And, you know, he, he was, he was saying that, that the, the ridiculous part of, of this, this retail sales stuff is um, it's not it's not persistent, right? I mean, it's it's one time events, but more importantly, it's uh, I lost my train of thought. Now I remember is it's it's not adjusted for inflation, right? Mm. They report nominal sales; they don't mm -hmm. report real sales. So they report this big increase. And the second thing they do that I point out is they don't adjust for population growth, which is absolutely insane. 
right? If there are more people buying stuff, you have to adjust, but they don't. And so someone actually pointed out on, on Twitter that, well, wait a minute. If, if retail sales were up, you know, whatever it was, six point something, and inflation was 6.4, we have negative retail sales growth, right? Mm. And uh, well, you know, that, that's, that's not what we report. We report a big number. Like, okay, fine. You can delude yourself into thinking that everything's great. Um, but having to pay more for stuff, particularly restaurant food, which was the biggest component of retail sales, that, that's just not, that's not growth. Mm. If, if I eat the same food, but it costs me more, that is not an increase in retail sales. It's just not. Mm. I, but uh, the one small, not to, um, cause I, I agree with you there that, that I think the data should be adjusted that way, but I'm pretty sure even, even, on, even in the real sense, this was a pretty big, big beat on retail sales for this I, month. I, yeah, I, I, I think it was, but again, I think, I think that was a month on month effect. It is month on month. December, because December was negative. Yeah. Right? And, so. and just to give people a, a sense of this, this is a, it was a 3% nominal re retail sales which is a big beat considering i think people the prediction was like 1.9 percent or something like that so when people are talking about real we're doing inflation adjusted so we're sub even subtracting out that the 0.5 percent which i think was uh, month over month cpi then you know that's how people are getting to even 2.5 which is even in a real sense that's a big beat for 1.9 percent um i i agree i agree with you i i'm not sure what to make of it like let's setting aside for a second, maybe this data isn't being uh, portrayed in, in necessarily an accurate light. How is the market digesting all this? Because you know we're, we're still in, I think, a a good news is bad news sort of paradigm while people are worried about inflation. And what I mean by that is when hot economic data comes back, it causes concern because it gives Powell more leeway to high rates, right? Or it suggests that we might not have conquered this inflation problem, right? So we, we got some, so the CPI data that we got, again, it was, you know, it was roughly in line with expectations uh, for, for month over month, which it came back, core was 0.4% month over month, uh, and headline was 0.5. That was right in line with expectations. Uh, on a year over year basis, it came in slightly hotter than people were predicting. Uh, it was 5.6 and 6.4 versus estimates of 5.5 and 6.2. But we had PPI come in this week uh, at 6%, uh, which was hotter than the 5.4% that was expected. The retail sales was a little bit hotter than expected. And uh, the uh, job job report, um, there was slightly lower claims than were that than was expected, 194,000 versus uh, 220,000, uh, which was expected. So all, yep. all of these kind of signs, you know, no huge beats here, but everything just came in, I think, a little hotter than people were expecting, which causes people to think that, hey, maybe we haven't actually beaten this inflation. And you saw uh, bond yields respond exactly how you might think, right? So there's a big hop in the two year, which you're, which you're seeing over here on the, on the left side of things. So we're right in between 4.6 and 4.65%. Uh, and the yield curve, uh, you know, as measured by the tens and twos, just continues to go lower into inverted territory. So all of that kind of spells trouble ahead. But the question, I, we, this is what we were talking about right before we got on, is if, you know, stocks aren't responding like that. The bond market is responding exactly how you might think it mm -hmm. should respond. But stocks have been curiously resilient in the face of this, in the face of this economic data. And it's just funny to watch, uh, you know, so sorry, on the left here, you're looking at the S&P 500 and, and NASDAQ futures. So, the, you know, you've got stocks climbing at the same 
time is you've got the terminal rate, uh, which is the market's expectation of where rates are going to end up climbing. And so now we're back above uh, 5% to 5.29% in the implied terminal rate. So how do you explain this? Because this this seems like contradictory data to me. Well, okay, yes. And it's absolutely a great, great observation. But but I think there's a couple things you have to you have to parse out, which mm-hmm. is the time. So from the beginning of the year to a few days ago, um, basically the terminal rate was falling. The expectation of the terminal rate was falling. Everyone was convinced the pivot was here. And we had we had two things that are causing or that caused again past tense caused one of the great melt ups uh, of of recent memory uh, in uh, January and the and the first call it ten days of, of February, which was you know China and the Bank of Japan you know my buddy although I, and now he's outgoing I mean crazy Kuroda san the sun is going to set. On crazy Kurodasan, they just elected a new central bank head, and it's just very sad. But Kurodasan unleashed a Kuroda tsunami, uh, the largest increase in in money supply growth in his tenure, which is saying something. And and the stat that I just love is in four days, uh, in I think it was December, he reversed all of the QT that the EU and and the US did in twenty twenty two. So in four days, okay, then on top of that, right, as, as great as that tsunami was, you know, heading our, towards our shores, uh, China, um, you know, basically the PBOC said, Kurodasan, yeah, child's play, trillion, trillion with a T, a trillion of new liquidity. Uh, and they've now said they're going to do three of those babies. Now, in 2016, they saved us from recession globally. Um, remember, when oil prices at 26 bucks, and everybody thought the world was ending. And they stepped up and printed four trillion and and saved the world. So, so they're trying again, and uh, all of that liquidity came crashing into Silicon Valley, uh, West Coast on on January 1st. And caused the greatest short covering uh, in history, right? In a, in a 12-day period, uh, more shorts were covered than, than any other time. And so we had this, this massive melt-up, um, but all the short covering is over. And so what you've seen in the past couple of days is, huh, okay, um, this good news is bad news. Okay, things are hotter like literally hotter. January was hot. Um, and the market's going down. So uh, I think what you're going to see is kind of a, a gravity effect taken over. Mm. And unless crazy Kurodasan and and uh, the PBOC, actually, I don't know the name of the PBOC head, um, which is interesting. That's the way I like it. I like not knowing the names of central bankers. I think we shouldn't know the names of central bankers. In fact, I I just retweeted this morning this amazing, and it's a little long, but it's this amazing video that somebody did on CBDCs, and mm-hmm. you, you got you got to watch it. I mean, it's it's five minutes, so like I said, it's, it should be three minutes, but it is. It just goes through all of the the dystopian reality 
of central bank digital currencies. And but but one of the main points is why do we hang on every word of this small group of you know deified people? You know, Ms. Lagarde and, and Jerome or Jay or the letter J or whichever one he is. It's it's crazy. I mean, it's literally crazy when we mm. could have a, you know, uh, codified, uh, immutable monetary policy that's global, that's, you know, um, that's uh, accessible, that's fair. And you know, can't bribe Bitcoin. You you can bribe central bankers. You can you know. I mean, it's it was it's a, it was just a very well done video, um, down to the testimonials, which I thought were hilarious. But um, all of that comes down to me to say, look, if if people want to believe that we're going back to a world of easy money and Fed. And other central bank largesse, and therefore you can justify higher PEs. God love you. Um, I, I think that's a horrible way to invest because all of the economic data, whether it's the Empire State Index, which just you know set a new all-time low, yeah. uh, whether it's the prices paid forward index, which is collapsing to levels we've only seen at, <clears throat> at like really bad recessions, like the Great Recession and the Great Depression. Um, you know, leading economic indicators are, are, are collapsing so hard. It's almost painful to watch and earnings estimates are, are collapsing. So, um, the only thing that's saving is short covering and PE multiples rising. That's just not a good way to invest in my mind. Mm. So basically if I had to sum, sum up that, that statement or your, your kind of thoughts there is there's the there's the reopening and sort of the reliquification that's going on in China and uh, the PBOC, right? Which is kind of, you know, boosting markets globally. And then maybe this is not necessarily something that's long lived, right? Like ultimately, yep. if, if we want to get comfortable with, with this expansion, then we'd like to see some fundamental economic data backing it up. But all the forward looking economic indicators, earnings, like those, those kind of fundamental things that would give us confidence in this rally basically aren't there. Is that a fair summary? Uh, absolutely. And look, I'm, I'm, you, you know me, I'm a fundamental value person. And, and, mm. and look, and that doesn't make me gooder or better than, than somebody else who has a different view. It, just, it actually is a handicap for you know, much, much of the last 20 years. It's actually been a real handicap because I, I just can't. I can't look at, at Apple at at this this crazy EV to EBITDA, a company that that hasn't grown their their total net income in the last couple of years, um, and and think it's mm -hmm. it's a good thing to own. I, I just can't. I mean, I love their product. I'm actually getting a new you know MacBook Pro today, and you know they're they're delivering it. Um, so I, I believe in the products, but man, the 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 price of the stock. Is, is ridiculous. And it's because of, you know, passive indices and there's 7% of every index. And every time 401k money goes in, it has to buy it. And, and I get it. Okay. But I, I think it's hard if you do focus on fundamentals 
to be excited about equities, you know, broadly. There are individual companies you can get excited about. I mean, there are some individual stocks in Europe that I think are really interesting. There are some interesting stocks in, in Japan, particularly the financials, because there appears to be, for the first time in 40 years, signs of economic growth and, and inflation. Um, that's good for, for the for the financials. Now, they've already gone up a lot, so I'm not saying they're going to continue to go up as much as they have, but, you know, it's been 40 years. They've been down 80%. Just let that sink in. For 40 years, if you held Japanese bank stocks, you lost 80% of your money. Now, you know, could we go to only down 70% and be up 50, 60, 80, 100%? Uh, yeah, it's possible. What's going on, guys? Want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Curve. They are the one-stop shop credit cards that helps you take control of your personal finances. Here's the reason I personally love this company. These guys are all about helping you manage and maximize your personal cash flow. We have been talking for the last couple months about everything that the Fed is doing with raising interest rates. Obviously, this is not, no one's got a crystal ball. This is not financial advice, but I think it makes sense more than ever now for companies to be managing their cash flow and for you as an individual to be managing your personal cash flow as well. Curve makes it super, super easy to do that. Even I can do it as a technological Philistine. They aggregate all of your spending information in one place. They make it super easy to plan. But they actually go one step further than that. They have a very cool feature called Go Back in Time, which allows you to switch payments from one card to another. So if you have an unexpected expense crop up, boom, you can move that over to your credit card, free up some cash. Or maybe you learned too late that you could have earned more rewards by spending on a different card. Boom, Curve has you covered there too. And the last thing that I'll say is, if you click the link at the bottom of this episode, you'll get $20 in Curve Cash, but you'll only get that if you click the vanity link at the bottom of this episode. Plus, that gives me the credit as well. So thank you, Curve. I appreciate you caring about cash flow. Guys, click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell my center. Yeah, I, th I think you might be right. Um, I'm, I'm searching for this. There was a great tweet that I think Michael Batnick did. And uh, or this is Ben Carlson. This is Ben Carlson, sorry. And yep. uh, it's, it's a great, it's, it's basically, he, this is the tweet. The Great Depression turned an entire generation into frugal misers. The pandemic turned us all into raging spenders. And he's, I think the point that he's trying to get at is that, you know, it takes a long time for you to change your frame of reference about something. Like yep. you can, you can implement a system with poor incentives for a long period of time and people can learn those wrong incentives. And it happens across like every level, right? Like let's say you're a, it's kind of the same way. It's kind of just a different way of framing what people say in business, especially in web two of like, you're at, you're at the mercy of your stupidest competitor. And what that means is, <laughs> you know, if, if you're, that. if you're competing with someone that spends like a drunken sailor, but when times are good, they have access to an infinite well of capital. They can do these things that make it seem like they're winning from the outside, right? Cause they're just spending. They don't care about unit economics or profitability. So it looks like they're gaining all this market share. All the employees over there are like, yeah, we're just, we're winning here and here Look and at here. Stripe. Yeah. And to this, that point, look at Stripe. This I can mean, go on for years. For they years. just burned five hundred million dollars. Yeah, in a quarter. Yeah, in a quarter. I, yeah, they burned five hundred million dollars. Yeah, and yet if they went out to market today, 
they could raise it at whatever valuation they want because everybody loves the narrative and everybody loves, oh, it's like 11 lines of code or seven lines of code or whatever. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay, fine. But if you can't monetize it, actually, and you can't actually make money, I mean, there are so many. 40% of the Russell 2000 don't make money. Yeah. Think about that. Almost half of the companies don't make money. And I, I, you know, I got news for people, right? You know, capitalism only works when you make money. Mm -hmm. It, It does not work if you're spending other people's money. That is, that is actually something called communism. Well, it, it's it's exactly to your point about how crazy it is that we all kind of worship at the altar of this very small group of people. You can you can sort of think of what the 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 objective of what the central banks tried to do during COVID, right? And there's honestly good reason for them to do this is they don't want people to panic. They want you to go out there and spend money. So you can almost view this as this is like a lab type experiment. And you know, there's a uh, the the doctor, right, or the person in the white lab coat looking in at the little rat is the Federal Reserve and central banks, and they're pressing the Skinner box to get us, the rat, to do an action, which is to go out and and spend money. And it turns out, like, once you reinforce that interaction in in an animal, in in a rat, it's very hard to unlearn that behavior. And that's that's why it's so – that's what's difficult right now, is the central bank has changed their mind. They say, okay, little rat in in the cage, it's it's time for you to not want the, uh, you know – the, the yeah. cocaine or the food or whatever that we've yeah. been we've been training you to to want and people at every level it's it's uh, funds you know it's companies that got drunk on debt it's individual people that thought they were going to get you they got used to transfer payments and life on easy mode and it just takes a long time to to re- unlearn those behaviors that that was the that was the explicit policy objective and, and goal of the Fed to kind of to kind of push out so. I don't know. I thought it was a very succinct. It was a very succinct way of, of describing a phenomenon, which I've I've kind of been observing, but haven't really been able to to put my thumb on. No, um, and it's it's a great point, and 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 it is a generational thing, right? That that yeah. issue with Japan, right? It's it's generational, right? Thirty, yeah. forty years. You know, this doesn't doesn't change in three or four months. And look, I I show this this or I used to show this great chart that that Lacey Hunt put together uh, again another great great mind in fact he and he and Rosie are doing a, a webcast next week um, but but Lacey had this chart and it, it showed you know post uh, the depression debt was abhorred I mean debt in every sector of this country government debt corporate debt personal debt I mean, Depression babies did not use debt. They yeah. bought things for cash. They did not use credit cards. And then I then I then I show the chart. It, it inflects in in 1981. It inflects and basically goes you know 60 degrees to now we have the highest level of debt in in history. And and I always hold up my my credit card and I ask people what is this. And they're like, oh, it's a credit card. I'm like, nope, mm. it's a debt card. How much would you use it if it was called a debt card? <laughs> credit right? sounds better, we, though. We we used to send people to debtor's prison. I know. 
Right now. now, if you have a big credit line, you're a big man or a big woman, right? It's amazing, right? Credit is this weird kind of reframing of debt. And the more you have to, and, and to be fair, the, the system, if, if you want to get back to, we always have to go to Sinister Saturday. If you want to go to, to the, the sinister piece of it, that was the whole plan, right? The creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 started a series of events designed to strip the wealth from those who could not get debt or credit, okay? The average mm-hmm. person with a fixed income or minimum wage job could not get credit and therefore uh, the rich people got credit. So what do you do? You have an inflationary bias that increases the value of the assets that you buy with debt yeah, and strips away the wealth of the masses and creates the largest wealth and income inequality we've ever had in history. And now you're, you're showing this picture about, about the, you know, the so best spenders in I, terms of, of debt are the government. I, mean, I saw- I saw this article come out this week, and I have to. It made me a little. It made me. It made me angry. It, it did make me a little angry. And should I, should it, you know? The, so I, I I've found this before. We've talked about it on this show. We we we've looked at the estimates that the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, have for what the deficit is going to be over the next ten years, and it was coming. It was clocking in at one point six trillion dollars per year, which I thought was nuts. They this Wednesday. That's actually been revised up. Been revised <laughs> up, yeah. yeah, yeah. So now it's it's going to be roughly what one point, you know, average two trillion. Two Deficits trillion. are going to average two trillion dollars annually as tax receipts fail to keep pace with the rising cost of Social Security and Medicare benefits for retiring baby boomers. Now I'm gonna I'm just gonna translate that because one thing that is infuriating to me as a mm-hmm. as a line mm-hmm. is when people in this very condescending way say that. The way that governments are financed and household finance are not the same. Okay. So let me translate, let me translate the, these words. Tax receipts are revenue and social security and Medicare benefits for retiring baby boomers are obligations. So what this has said is that even as a $2 trillion deficit, we, our revenue is not going to be, is, is, does not match up with our outstanding obligations. And by the way, you can't print Social Security. You can't print Medicare. These are obligations that you owe to people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is healthcare that you you can print all the paper in the world. Someone out there actually has to go out there and administer the healthcare, and you cannot default on this because if you do, you're going to have an entire generation of people that are out in the streets rioting. So, you know, I I understand. I understand that there's a difference that the U.S. government can print money, but also at a certain point, you have real obligations that you either can't print your way out of, or the solution, which people aren't saying, is just debasement. And that, so that there is a consequence, right? There is a consequence. And now I'm getting, I feel like I'm getting a little emotional going on this rant here, but it, it's so frustrating. I don't understand why more people can't see this. That matters. It's the craziest idea to come out of this whole 0%, this 0% ZERP uh, weird strain of thinking. The weirdest thing to come out of that is that people have somehow concluded that debt isn't real or it doesn't matter? It's sorry, rent over, but like it's no, like no, no, crazy. no. It's, it's not. It's not idea. over. It's just. It's just starting. The, look, 
an entitlement, right? An entitlement is a promise that you make to yourself that you don't fund and you ask your kids to pay for. (laughs) Yeah. Who wouldn't do that, right? So what's the average age of Congress today? I actually don't know, but I would guess it's been going up. I've seen the charts. I know it's going up. Yep. Yep. I think it's Uh, close to 70, right? I think it's close to 70. No. And oh yeah, I think it is. I, I I don't know if that's exactly right, but I, I I think it is. Um, So it's probably not right. That's probably not the average. There's probably some other, but um, there we go. So here's the thing. If you think about the number of octogenarians, septuagenarians, <laughs> sexagenarians, 60-year-olds, um, in Congress, right? What, and, and they're the beneficiaries of these, these entitlements. And, all of the, and, and this is the tricky part. Who votes the most? It's the- Senior it's, citizens. Yeah. Senior citizens. First, by, and it's not even close, right? It, it's not close. So if, if you want to get elected- you have to sixties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not quite seventy. It it's it slates older for the Senate. The House the House is fifty eight. I mean yeah. that's still not young, but it's yeah. Yeah. So sixty yeah. sixty four is the average yeah. age of Senate. So and, and my point there is that, that that is clearly boomer. So boomers mm-hmm. are in control and they made these promises to themselves and they didn't fund them. And so now they got to figure out a way to pay for them. Well if you can't pay for them, what do you do? I mean, you literally just make the money come out of thin air. This is the cult of Kelton, uh, the MMTers. And it's it's so ridiculous because now I'm going I'm to get you really angry. All right. If, if we're going to print $1.9 trillion a year, well, why don't we just print three? Why do we collect any taxes at all? Yeah. Right? I mean, why do, why do we collect one third of what we need and that, and that one third disproportionately attacks the, the middle and lower classes, right? Y- yes, they pay a lower percentage, but every dollar that they lose causes stress, like real stress. You know, it was, you know, oh, tax the billionaires, you know, 15%, 20%, 30%, whatever the number, doesn't matter, Right. Doesn't matter. Their, their life does not change, and so, and yes, wealthy people pay a disproportionate share of the total taxes. But why do why does any of us pay any taxes? It just doesn't make any sense. If, if you're if you're not going to balance the budget, taxation is is kind of a weird dynamic. So, but here's the real problem: if capital I capital F, if it were true that you could create wealth by printing money, then every country would just do that. The problem is every country that has tried to do that has failed. Every single one. That's the other thing that I, it's just, sorry, I know I'm just, I know I'm going on my lane of frustration here, but when people say that, oh, you know, government financing isn't like household financing. Yes. But what history would suggest is that over, it takes a lot longer than everyone thinks, but after a certain period of time, Debt matters even for the dominant empire, the hegemon of the day. And, and, and usually, you know, when you're looking at what made an empire fall, various different reasons, right? Like try, just try digging into like why the Roman Empire fell. It's very difficult to isolate any one factor. But debt. 
debt and it certainly was and and Rome they had the mint right they had the treasury they had the mint in the center of the city so it wasn't you know that that different of a of a situation you know even even back in ancient Look, times at, it, it's it's just the the age old issue of at what point does the graft and corruption become unbearable for the masses and again back to this video that this this guy made you know debt slaves right mm-hmm. that's what we all are we're debt slaves we're slaves to our masters because of fiat and when when you can control the value of fiat and you can devalue the ownership share of the masses and funnel it up to the people at the top, which is what every empire in history has done. At some point, the masses say, nope, no mas. And then the empire falls. And there are no exceptions. <laughs> that's that's the funny part, right? There are no exceptions. It's undefeated. It's undefeated. Yeah. And uh you know, I, you know, you, we, we disagree slightly on that. I, I don't think there's a cabal at the top that's, that's engineering all this. I think it's a set of broken incentives. I think it's a set of broken incentives. And you do, what I, what I do believe is that there's a small group of people. There, there is a small group of people, obviously, who make decisions that really matter that probably for that well-meaning, right? Like, even if you just look at how the, the, the uh, COVID pandemic was handled, you know, it's very hard to go back and I can see myself even, you know, if I was in the room making decisions at the Federal Reserve, you know, the trade-offs of, you know, you're faced with this vast unknown, right? The entire world and global economy is going to shut down. We don't know how bad this virus is going to be. You know, no measure, you know, what measure would you not sacrifice in order to to to, to stop yeah. that? But But the problem is when you stack those incentives one by one over time, it kind of lines up with this pattern that we've seen repeated in history time and time and time again. And that's the concerning thing to me. And I think there, there's a period of time where we say, hey, the decisions that were made, the structures that we had, the way we've organized our institutions were really good for a certain period of history, but we need to make big changes going forward. And, yeah. and to your point about you can't print money and create wealth, I'm actually going to borrow a, <laughs> I don't know if you watched the Gary Gensler video on staking, but to borrow his own metaphor, if you yeah. cut one piece of steak in three pieces, you don't have any more steak. And I think that's the thing that's very non-intuitive for people, at least for me in the beginning about printing money, is that you think, well, obviously, if you print more money, you have more wealth. No, you don't. You've just increased the, the denominator. That, that's all you've done. So no, you just devalued the currency. And, right. and look, it just takes more dollars to buy stuff. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's kind of funny. And look, I, I love... I mean, I really do. I, I love your uh, positivity and your your belief that that things are are fair. I, I I absolutely love those those traits. That's why we get along. And and but I I I uh, I'm just old and I um and and I'm jaded. And and look, I I, I can show you the the chart of the Bilderbergs and I can show you that, you know, Bilderberg members run control every major company and government in the world. I mean, it's just it, it, the, the cross pollinization 
of those individuals. Uh, and it's a very small number. I mean, we're talking, you know, a few hundred people are on the boards of every major corporation, every bank, every government. And I, I, I wish, I wish, I really do wish it was just, you know, bad incentives, encouraging bad behavior, but I, I actually think it's bad people <laughs> doing mm-hmm. bad behavior, but, uh, you know, topic for another day. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. The Bilderberg, the Bilderberg chart's actually pretty wild. You, you, everyone can just Google B-I-L-D-E-R-B-E-R-G group. Um, I, I do want to just just conclude here by talking about crypto a little bit because there's you know the, the big concern over in crypto is regulation, right? So we've we've actually kind of got a couple of different uh, conflicting sets of news over the last couple of weeks. So the 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 topic that is on everyone's mind, right, is what it what it seems like, and you know I've I've spent a good amount of time the last couple of weeks uh, talking to people. But basically, it looks like this administration has sort of given the green light to regulators to crack down much harder. And honestly, I think, you know, putting my pragmatic uh, hat on here, yeah, this industry has a little bit of egg on its face because of SBF was kind of our voice in Washington, and he embarrassed a lot of really powerful people. So, uh, you know, no comment on that, but like, that's, that's, you know, that's how this stuff goes. So the SEC, the SEC filed a, you know, a probe into Kraken, and the result was they paid a $30 million fine and shut down their staking program, albeit there were some ways that Kraken was running that staking program that were, shall we say, non-standard or could potentially fit the definition of you know, something that looks more like a security, right? Because the yield that people were getting from the product were more from the efforts of Kraken necessarily than the yield that was getting generated from the underlying protocols. So there was, there's a little bit of mechanics there, um, but Paxos was issued a Wells notice uh, from, from the SEC, which is a big deal, uh, based on uh, BUSD, which, you know, according again to the, uh, sorry, this was from the New York Department of Federal Services, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, there was the consideration that BUSD is a security. Um, and, and now it looks like, you know, one of the other developments that came through this week was that there was, there, the SEC is basically, they've got a proposal out there which is, uh, it's a, it, the SEC voted on Wednesday, it was four to one. Uh, Hester Peirce was the only dissenter to propose a rule that would expand the types of assets that investment advisors, such as hedge funds and pension funds, are required to hold using qualified custodians. So qualified custodian is a very specific definition when, you know, uh, as defined by the, the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the challenge is that most even even most VC funds, I mean, Mark, I'm not sure if you're a VC or an RIA, but mm-hmm. my understanding mm-hmm. is if you're going to hold a bunch of liquid tokens, most most funds are structured as registered investment advisors these days. And the challenge is, even if there's, I think, still a question, if, you know, Coinbase or Anchorage, you know, fit the definition of a, of a qualified custodian, even if they do, 
they, they aren't going to, they don't today, and it's unrealistic to have them offer the long tail of crypto assets. So basically what this would do is limit, it, it just kind of chokes off kind of the longer tail of crypto assets from any form of, of institutional capital, right? If it can't be custodied at a qualified custodian. So it's kind of just, it's just another way of, of sort of limiting. It's just another obstacle, basically, that people need to jump through. Then they fight you. Mm-hmm. Look, it, it, this, and, and, and I, know, I know you and I have, have differing opinions on this of, of how coordinated and, and how um, planned this all was. But look, I'd, I've been talking about this for, for a year. Mm-hmm. This has all been part of the plan since day one. Um, and they've been very, you know, steady and and uh, and measured in in the execution of that plan and execution intentionally uh, used. Yeah, you, know, you said it right. This is Operation Choke Point. This is this is about choking off uh, access to capital markets, and and it's about fomenting. Uh, the FUD, right? The fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's about uh, criminalizing this, this, at these assets, and in the eyes of of the average user. And uh, look, the bottom line is: um, first, they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you. And when when you know a couple billion dollars left the banking system to play around with magic internet money. No one cared. Nobody cared. When hundreds of billions of dollars left the banking industry to, to go into crypto, <clears throat> people cared. And, and those people now are using uh, regulation, quote unquote, any regulation, right? They're not, they're not actually using regulation. They're using enforcement. There's a big difference. They are manufacturing reverse engineering charges against people and and it's and it's so insane right it's it's okay here are the rules and then you play by the rules and then ex post a year two years later they say well yeah okay you played by the rules but here's the thing we didn't mean those were the rules these these are actually the rules and therefore you violated the rules like but but those weren't the rules those are the new rules but you still violate them. So pay us. Mm, mm. And like, well, but, but we didn't do anything wrong. Why would we pay you? Well, because if you don't pay us, then we shut you down. But that's extortion. I mean, that, that's literally, if you look up the definition of extortion, that, that's what that is. And look, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to get shut down. So I, I probably shouldn't, you know, call the regulators of me uh, extortionist, but, but I actually think they are. And, and I, I really this this is right into Sinister Saturday. I I think this is one hundred percent a sinister plot to you know basically pave the way for the introduction of pure evil. CBDCs are pure, unadulterated evil. Uh, it's social credit wrapped up in a nightmarish fiat uh, digital asset that's centralized, controlled, and and you are at the mercy. I mean, just the absolute mercy of of these 
these elites. I mean, imagine, right? I said, it's Friday, it's payday. And, and you get your money and you drunk tweet about the president and your money doesn't work the next day. Or, you know, you just, you, you did something wrong and your, your quote unquote score goes down. You know, I, I, I'm just diversion for a second. Everyone knows FICO, right? And it's funny, you know, I did not know that there's actually a company called Fair Isaac um, that created the FICO score. And you should, everyone should pull up this stock. I mean, it is an absolute money machine. It's one of the best performing stocks of all time. And it's because they basically created a system that the elites love because it, it suppresses the masses, right? You, I are completely controlled by this little score. And, and I'll tell you a fun thing. So 10 years ago, um, I, for whatever reason, I don't know why I did this, but, but I did. I signed up for a 10-year arm mortgage. And so it adjusted here and I wasn't paying attention because so, I'm an idiot because I don't pay attention to that stuff. And I got this notice that my, my rate was going to go from 3% to 7%. It's a big jump. So I'm like, I don't know, I'll just refinance. So I, I go out to refinance and like, oh, you know, you're, you're a self-employed person. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, well, you, you know, you, you own this company and that's not good. I'm like, but my income's fine. I'm like, well, but, but it's not, it's not W2 income. I'm like, so you're telling me that it's better to be a $50,000 a year W2 than, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of, you know, self-employed income. Absolutely. Well, then, then the killer came. Oh, and your, and your FICO score, it's just not that good. What do you mean? I don't have any credit. I don't have any debt. Like, well, that's the problem. And, oh, and at Christmas time, I bought some stuff for Stace at Athleta. And they said, oh, if you sign up for a credit card, we'll give 20% off and stuff's really expensive there. So I said, all right, fine. I'll take, I'll take 20% off. Well, then I closed the credit card. And I go, oh, geez, that's the worst thing you can do. Mm. Like, what are you talking about? Mm. So... I, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, that's that you could almost trace to, there are some almost philosophical ideas that have been baked into our financial system. Like owning a home is good is that is a, you know, that's not like a, a physical fundamental law of the universe. That is something that the United States decided, right? It's kind mm -hmm. of in our DNA from manifest destiny and all that stuff. And we've just decided owning a home is, is good. And it's funny, I mean, if you, if you reframed owning a home to you're going to concentrate 95% of your net, net worth in one asset that you yeah. are extremely leveraged on, most people would say, hey, that's not a great idea, but that's what owning a home is. And yep. it's, it's very similar with debt. This goes back to Alexander Hamilton, who his idea was that some small amount of debt is good. And honestly, that idea, that philosophy, like inked its way into the way we, way we analyze credit and what, what makes you a good creditor and uh, or debtor in the United States. It's just, it's just funny. But, uh, but I, I do want to get your, your take on there's, there's one bit of, of good news because crypto has been remarkably uh, resilient to, you know, a slate of bad headlines about uh, yep. regulation. And one of the, one of the bright spots 
is that there was a there was a Wall Street Journal article that was run on on Binance. Um, so the, the the headline here is crypto giant Binance expects to pay penalties to resolve U.S. investigations. So the DOJ, CFTC have been probing the world's largest crypto exchange. Their head of strategy, a guy named Patrick Hillman, uh, came out basically and said that the company has been working to fill gaps in its early compliance efforts uh, and expects that regulators will impose fines for past conduct. So basically, he said, you know, the outcome will, quote, likely be a fine, could be more. We just don't know. That's for regulators to decide. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a relatively large fine. But I think the the market was certainly worried about much more than a fine when it came to Binance. So mm-hmm. a civil outcome here, as opposed to a criminal outcome, even if it's a gigantic civil outcome, would be would be huge because it's kind of removing big bits of risk from the market. And if we go back to this, this sort of we had we did an episode, I think a month and a half ago, of the three risks that are still remaining. You know, it was kind of uh, you know Genesis, you know Binance, and and Tether. And now mm-hmm. the DCG, uh, you know, Gemini situation has been resolved kind of, you know, there's, it looks like there's some sort of uh, agreement there, which I'm sure no one's truly happy, but the, I guess that's what makes a compromise. And now if Binance were to, to pay a, a civil fine here and not a criminal one, then that would remove another big risk from the market. So I don't know if you have any, have any thoughts there, but maybe, yeah. you know, just cause this is the 200th episode, we could end on a, on a positive note here. No, look, I, I think it is, it is incredibly positive in that, uh, you know, the world's largest exchange. And, and, you know, look, there is a day in the future uh, where exchanges are, are less necessary um, when we can have a, a pure DeFi or a pure Bitcoin world. We're not there, um, not even close, but, but someday. Uh, so in the, in the interim, we need some viable exchanges. And, and the idea of you know, everybody's like, well, FTX was the second. No, no, they they were never the second largest exchange. No, they just weren't. So fake. But but they're still a big exchange and and they failed. And 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 what we saw was a resilience in that there are 500 exchanges, you know, not, not like when uh, Mt. Gox went down and there were a couple. So, but but threats around Binance um, you know, having having challenges were, were real. And so I, I agree with you that a, a civil penalty would would be much better. And although I do find it interesting, again back to extortion, it, this is a global business. It's not a U.S. business, and they have a U.S. arm. But you know, for for, for people to think that they can, you know, censor uh, a Chinese national living in Dubai running a global network, you know, that's like the whole nature of crypto. It's it's nation stateless. Mm. But but. That that that's a positive. And and look, you know, Bitcoin's up ten percent since we talked last week. It's up, you know, thirteen percent uh in the past month. And it's up, you know, meaningfully from the bottom, uh kind of fifty odd percent from the bottom uh post FTX. So massive resilience. Uh, a lot of people starting to look toward the having uh early next year. And you know, crypto spring is getting long in the tooth. And, you know, we're only a few months away from crypto summer. And I, I just don't think people are ready. I, I saw somebody say, are you ready emotionally for $100,000 Bitcoin? I don't, I don't think people are. I really don't. I don't think they're, they're ready to, to see the, the next 
um, you know, bull cycle, which is as inevitable as, you know, spring turns to summer and, you know, night turns to day. It's going to happen. And, you know, all the, the, the fundamentals, back to fundamentals, I love fundamentals, hash rate, all-time high, number of wallets greater than 0.01, all-time high. Um, you know, you got the whole new thing on, on uh, ordinals and, you know, things being uh, and NFTs, you know, on, on Bitcoin, um, really huge, hugely positive. And, and, and look, this goes to, are we going to live in a, a single chain world? Is Bitcoin going to be the chain to rule all chains? Are we going to be in a multi-chain world with bridges and, and interoperability? I don't know. I still don't know the answer to that. But I, I think that the inevitability of digital assets uh, is stronger than it's ever been. The positive energy around the ecosystem is starting to come back after being suppressed. And look, are they going to try to beat it out of us more? 100%. There's mm -hmm. more bad stuff coming from our buddies in, in Washington and, uh, and probably some, some doozies. Um, there'll be some big fines and some big censures. And, um, but in the, in the end, I think, I think this, this ecosystem is incredibly resilient. It is, it is designed to be resilient. You know, decentralization is by its very nature designed to be resilient. And that's why I'm, I'm so comfortable um, staying the course and continue to make progress. Mm. I agree with you. I agree with you. So, all right, Mark, I, I know we're running over time here, but this was a, this was a really fun one for, for 200. And you, even though maybe it didn't seem 100% like this in, throughout this entire episode, I, I remain very, very positive on, on things. And I, like, I, I feel super lucky and, and privileged to work in, in crypto as an industry. I think it's, you know, it's not always the most steady, predictable, reliable industry, but yeah. that's also what makes it fun. And that's why it grows really quickly. And Things just, I, you know, you, you almost take for granted working in this space, how much actual innovation happens and the velocity of new ideas. And yeah, I can't imagine working, working anywhere else. So 100%. Easy, and but. look, if, if everything was super easy, then everyone would do it right. and the alpha would disappear. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy. And that's what creates the opportunity. And an innovation is all about overcoming obstacles, right? Mother, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So when there are obstacles or, or inefficiencies or, or negative externalities, uh, innovators throughout the years have come up with ways to overcome them. And exactly. every time there, there's an obstacle or, or an incumbent fights back, the innovators, the builders, uh, will will we'll come up with with a better solution, and and that that's what's fun, right? And that's you know the whole idea of of innovation as an asset class is is what gets me out of bed every day, and you know investing capital alongside and behind incredible innovators and builders uh, is is just the greatest thing ever, it just just is so. Yeah. 
happy 200. Congratulations on, on everything you and, and Yano and, and the rest of the crew at Blockworks have, have done to build such a incredible franchise. Uh, I, am, I am privileged to, to be part of it. Uh, love doing this every week. Uh, it's great discipline, which is, you know, part and parcel of success is having right. some discipline. But it's also, it's just, it's great to take time once a week to, to think about big ideas and, and to have dialogue and debate in search of truth. And, and you do that better than, than anybody I know. So Socrates would be proud. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. All right. I will see you here uh, same time next week. Cheers, All right. My friend. See you then.